My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? 1,097 people in the U.S. died from the coronavirus last Saturday, the day the major media announced Biden's presumed victory over Trump. The current average exceeds 800 deaths every day. Despite this gruesome toll, or perhaps because of it, more Americans voted in this election than ever before, and each candidate got more votes than any candidate before, about 75 million for Trump and about 81 million for Biden. Crucially, the election featured the highest recorded proportion of voters under the age of 30. In short, the people of the U.S. seem to have grasped the significance of this election more clearly than many of us socialists. And going forward, our success as socialists will depend on analyzing carefully what has changed and what remains the same. In particular, we need to pay close attention to the dynamics within each of the two major political parties, as well as the differences between the two. Few people have a better understanding of these dynamics than my guest for this second of two election special episodes, um, and I talked to him just before the election. Cedric de Leon is director of the Labour Centre at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. His long resume as a labour activist includes campaigns with the United Farm Workers in Connecticut and California, SEIU in Providence, and the American Federation of Teachers in Michigan. De Leon is also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA. His latest book, Crisis, When Political Parties Lose the Consent to Rule, compares the current dynamics within and between the two parties to those that led to the Civil War. De Leon defines a crisis of hegemony as a historical moment in which parties disintegrate into factions and the people withdraw their consent to be governed by the political establishment. Such a crisis occurs when there is an unexpected challenge that causes a defection or deep split within the party. Then the party establishment tries to reabsorb or contain this defection. And if that fails, the party splinters into factions and may lose the people's consent to to its rule. I began by asking De Leon to summarize this four-stage sequence. Um, most of the time, um, institutional politics are powerful enough to, uh, to maintain the allegiance um, of their constituencies. But every once in a while, there comes a moment when uh, people uh, are just not interested in politics as usual. Uh, and it usually, this change usually takes place around an unanticipated event. Um, 
uh, such such as uh, let's say a war or an economic crisis. Um, and this moment of, of what I call a contingency or an unanticipated event then leads to um, the second stage of the sequence, which is defection, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea there is that uh, the constituents of uh, one or other major parties leave those home parties and, um, and end up supporting a party that they don't historically uh, support. Uh, so that's defection. That's the second stage. Mm -hmm. The third stage is reabsorption, right? And the idea there is that the political establishment typically does not uh, take a challenge to its power lightly. Uh, they they typically can be relied upon to uh, do whatever it takes to absorb the challenge and lead everybody back uh, uh, to the primrose path of uh, politics as usual. Hmm. So we can usually count on them to do that, but what, whether or not they're able to do that um, uh, is what leads to the fourth stage in the sequence. If they're successful, then what we have is containment, right? Um, the political establishment has successfully reabsorbed the challenge and we return to politics as usual. If, however, that reabsorption uh, strategy backfires, um, then you get a crisis, um, a crisis of hegemony, which I define in two ways. The first is that you have a withdrawal of a mass consent to rule, uh, and uh, and the second is that you have um, uh, higher than usual party fracture or polar polarization within uh, within the party system. So those are the four stages of the crisis sequence. Wonderful. Um, you know, I'm especially struck by the application of your sequence to. Uh, the initial election of Obama and then what happened in the first couple of years because, uh, you know, at least in the uh, the part of the left that uh, I inhabit, uh, you know, we're used to characterizing uh, the Obama sort of, uh, I guess, era, if you like, as a whole, as one of uh, basically capitulation to, uh, you know, centrism or, or neoliberalism. Um, uh, but you have this account of, how the presidency actually changed. Um, so if you could summarize that. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the, the Great Recession um, leads to, um, to this fight within the Democratic Party between the centrist Democratic Leadership Council um, and its, um, its leading figure, Hillary Clinton, uh, and um, and Barack Obama, and um, you know what Barack Obama is able to do in this moment um, is to advance an alternative to the the you know Clintonite neoliberal Washington consensus style uh, type of politics, which is more anchored um, in the New Deal. Um, and you know if you go back and actually do a content analysis of his speeches. Um, at this time, the policies that he is uh, endorsing, it really does read like a new New Deal. Hmm. Right? Um, it is it's it's government infrastructure. It's the Employee Free Choice Act, which is meant to make it easier for unions to organize um, uh, workplaces uh, in the private sector. Um, and you know, it's this, and and it is a kind of like the first iteration, really, of the Green New Deal, because the 
the kind of infrastructural investment that that he proposes during the campaign um, and early within his administration is really about um, is, is really about um, doubling down on uh, on green technology hmm. and uh, green infrastructure. And um, and and you know people are talking about this. I mean, this is not it was not it, it was not in anybody's imagination, right? There are a number of accounts. Um, you know, in the mainstream press of folks calling this uh, legislative agenda the New New Deal. It's what they called it. There were mm. books called The New New Deal. Right? Yeah, I remember uh, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's, it, it's not a figment of anybody's imagination. It's, it's hard on the other side of it, right, to mm. think of the Obama administration as anything other than a capitulation to neoliberal capitalism. But it became that. It didn't begin that way. Mm. It wasn't anti-capitalist, of course. It was Fordist, right? It was Keynesian. It was right. Mm. This was this was this was th that was the absorption strategy of the Democratic Party after the Great Depression. This is this is what this is what you know Obama was was uh, trying to advance. But what I argue in the book is actually you know that he he is um, he is co-opted um, by neoliberals both in the Democratic Party um, by his appointees in the in the White House and also uh, stopped cold in his tracks uh, by an intransigent um, you know a congressional Republican leadership who saw it as their uh, duty to basically make Barack Obama a one-term president mm. and you know the combination of this this sort of like internal palace intrigue right? Uh, where his every move is essentially being narrowed and limited, constrained by these neoliberals um, like Larry Summers uh, and Rahm Emanuel, um, uh, together with some of his own, he, he has certain things, right? Uh, Barack Obama has this sort of belief in being a model of meritocracy and so forth, hmm. and that leads him to into all sorts of mistakes. But the result is that, you know, you have essentially the absorption of the of the New Deal challenge to to neoliberalism, and by 2010 he's talking about tax cuts, <laughs> um, and, you know, doing the same thing, right, uh, as ever, talking about trade deals and um, you know neoliberal trade deals and free trade and so forth. So, so that's that's the that's. Uh, I don't know if that's a short uh, summary, yeah. but it's a summary anyway yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of what I argue in the book. Yeah, no. Um, so, 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 you know, in terms of your four stages, the Great Recession is this like uh, kind of shock to the system that's unexpected. Yeah. Um, that's right. And that triggers uh, this. Uh, and you know what I really like about this is that uh, it puts it puts back in the historical contingency. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think as you're implying, Obama probably would not have gone sort of really far, perhaps in the way that some of us might have liked, uh, even without these obstacles, but that really there was this sort of um, possibility in the beginning, uh, but then the other stages that, that you've described, uh, you know, the reabsorption sort of uh, really kind of suffocates that um, and then, uh, you know, takes us to, uh, takes us to Trump. Um, uh, and, and so again, if you could walk us through this, uh, uh, these, uh, you know, really uh, uh, sort of uh, the chapters in your book that uh, describe how we came to 
to Trump again in terms of these these four stages. Right. So Trump is after reabsorption, right? He yeah. he is he is the he is the embodiment of of the crisis, right? Um, right. So, so the summary of that part of the book is that um, you know the the neoliberal reabsorption of the of the new New Deal uh, leads to a situation in which the social inequalities that it, that uh, came out of uh, of the Great Recession actually and, and some of which are were there already, but intensified by um, by the Great Recession, such as racial inequality, uh, fester, yeah. right? Because these you know tax cuts for small businesses is not really going to address these kind of deep structural issues, yeah. uh, and so and so they 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 uh, they grow, uh, they uh, and so uh, and the result is that you have um, fracture on the left. Right. It, it begins uh, with uh, Occupy Wall Street, um, and uh, and uh, then you have, of course, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement after the killing of Trayvon Martin in 2011. Yeah. And you have the beginnings of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Right. What I what I show in the book is that the that Sanders and and what uh, the people who become his surrogates. Begin shopping this all this this idea of um, of of launching an insurgent uh, third uh, uh, left uh, left alternative um, within the party and actually to challenge Barack Obama for mm. the presidential nomination. This is as early as um, 2011, 2012, mm. uh, and of course it comes to full fruition in 2000, uh, 2015 uh, when Bernie Sanders uh, uh, hits the campaign trail. So you have this kind of fracture on the left that happens as a result of the neoliberal absorption, right, of uh, of the original Obama agenda. And then on the right, what ends up happening is that, um, you know, in in order to stop the the Obama agenda in its tracks, folks may or may not remember that the that the the congressional leadership, the Republican congressional leadership makes this pact, right, with the Tea Party. And mm. of course, the Tea Party is not some sort of like, you know, grassroots, uh, militant, right-wing organization. This is really, it's it's organized and funded by media elites like the Fox Net Network uh, and also former uh, Republican elected officials like Dick Armey. Mm. Uh, and, you know, and so they're able to defeat um, you know, much of the Obama agenda with this partnership. But there is a contradiction there, right? Because mm -hmm. the Tea Party is not really interested in the kind of compromise that the, the Republican congressional leadership is willing to, to make, um, or, you know, is, is at least open uh, to, to making uh, with, the, with the White House. Mm -hmm. um, and the result is that what the Republicans have done, what the Republican elite have done, is they have welcomed into the party um, a disruptive um, element that consists of all sorts of different people. Right? The Tea Party, you, you know, there, you know, there, there are a number of you know neo-Nazi uh, racist elements uh, there. 
who then also bring in other uh, groups of right-wing wackos into the Republican fold, <laughs> right? And soon you have this kind of like weird uh, coalition that a kind of, let's say, a Reagan, you know, Republican Party would have been embarrassed mm -hmm. uh, to have uh, with birthers and economic nationalists and neo-Nazis um, and, uh, and, and so forth. And so the result is that 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 this process, right, um, also fractures the Republican Party on the right. So much so then that neither this divided Democratic Party nor a divided Republican Party is able to arrest the momentum of the Trump campaign. Hmm. And it, it is the fracturing of the party system, I, I argue, as well as you know the, the the withdrawal of the mass consent to rule that is happening at exactly the same time, which leads to the elevation of Trump to the presidency. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, you know that is close enough to the present that, as you were describing it, I could actually peg it in my mind to uh, you know to different events and. Uh, you know, the presidential debates even, um, which, right. which uh, I actually watched the Republican debates. It was fascinating to see them collapse in, uh, you know, in the face of Trump's uh, challenge. Um, uh, so, okay, so now, of course, your book ends uh, kind of with um, uh, a foreshadowing of, of what could happen during a Trump presidency. And, and so now we have a few years of that. So would you, would you call... I mean, I guess the pandemic, you know, is is an unexpected uh, sort of challenge, perhaps in your in your sequence. Um, uh, uh, so, so is that how you would uh, kind of uh, describe it? And then we also had these amazing protests during the the summer, which probably were also, you know, I mean, I think caught most of us by by surprise. Um, so yeah, how, how should we play out your argument for the last four years? The last four years are four years of crisis, hmm. right? I mean, this is not, we, we have not, it, it's, it, we, we have not come out of the crisis yet. If anything, it is uh, deepened and in, intensified. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, what, what we have are before us, and, and we had these before us in 2016 as well, when Trump was initially elected, are, are really three paths, right? Mm -hmm. One is a path of, of um, you know, what the Italian revolutionary Antonio Gramsci calls Caesarism, right? It's this mm -hmm. idea that, that you know, um, people follow a, a persona, right? A charismatic leader, um, who is kind of uh, above party hmm. uh, is maybe aligned with with a major institutional party, but is not really of that party, um, and um, and and um, you know there's there's evidence of that, of course, right? I mean, people call the Republican Party the party of Trump. Uh, they complain incessantly about the fact that nobody is standing up to him. That you know the kind of old Republican conservative values are really not much on the radar these days. Um, you know the Republican Party is what Trump says, hmm. um, and so so there is this path of Caesarism, which which remains uh, with us. I mean, he continues to have a huge following. 
the you know the the polls if we believe them are are tightening in this last week before the election hmm. the second path which we have always which we have all you know also always had before us since since, since 2016 is um is uh you know the a reassertion of of neoliberalism and i think that it is safe to say for those of us on the left that joe biden represents that hmm. right I mean, this, this this rhetoric of like I can bring you back to the good old days of the Obama administration, right? Uh, hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, sort of pleading for a kind of an amnesia of the of the deeping and deepening inequalities of that period, hmm. right? Um, you know, that's that's what the Biden presidency promises, right? Well, I will, we're we're going to go back to normalcy. Remember that guy Obama who enjoys sixty seven percent approval rating in the American you know, and the American public, I can bring you back to that. I was part of that uh, administration. I can bring you back to a moment of sanity. Um, and, you know, the, the neo, of course, the neoliberal agenda inside of that, right, is cloaked with this, with, with this perhaps, you know, mass longing for normalcy in the face of just tragedy and trauma under the pandemic and the killing of, you know, unarmed uh, people of color. Yeah. But that's what they're counting on, right? That we're, you know, people talk about Biden's empathy. It's like, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all it's a screen, right, for 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 a, a neoliberal agenda, right, um, in which we're going to once again honor the individual juridical rights of people of color, uh, you know, and due process under the law, but we're not going to actually address any like major structural um, inequalities that, you know, keep people of color at the bottom of the labor market, among other many other, you know, issues. Mm -hmm. So, and then there is a third uh, option. And uh, I remain hopeful about the third option. And this is a, this is the option of mass mobilization, mm. right? Um, and it's the idea that like we're not going to wait around for uh, either Trump or uh, Biden to ride in on their white horse and save us. That we're going to take matters into our own hands and push for a progressive um, agenda from below and make the party system, whoever wins, comes to our come to our position, right? Hmm. And I think the good news is that there are a number of like really exciting movements on the ground that are doing that. Um, I point to in the book um, the Red for Red strike wave, um, mm -hmm. you know, which which I mean, if for for any of the any of us who are paying attention to what was going on in terms of the opening of schools, the Red for Red strike wave is alive and well, right, in this moment of of uh, of austerity uh, and and school openings. Um, and then, of course, there's the movement for Black Lives, and I think what what is needed for that for that path of mass mobilization to become realized is um, is is for for those movements to uh, work in concert with each other and to push an intersectional vision of mass solidarity, mm. right? Um, that you know it's not and i'm not saying we don't play party politics i'm saying we're not phone banking for candidates we're not wasting our resources on funding the democratic party we're spending our time our energy and resources on building power from the ground up 
so that whoever the hell is in power, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, we are going to create the conditions necessary to make that person come to heal, hmm. right? That is the kind of power that I want to build um, in American civil society. So that's so I've already outed myself as being with the mass mobilization path out of this crisis. <laughs> but it's really the only way to resolve, you know, what is going on, right? I mean, we're not going to find any satisfaction in Trump. We'll have the opposite. We have neo-fascism in Trump. We have, you know, we have a neoliberal agenda in Biden, which will bring us back to 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 the Obama era. Um, and and we we must be the vehicle. Uh, for an alternative left agenda. I mean, if we're going to wait another year for the Democratic Party <laughs> to come around yeah. Yeah. and save us, I mean, you know, I mean, then we have not learned a damn thing <laughs> through hundreds of years of history. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's safe to say that at least among, I, I would say, the, the majority of uh, our listeners on this podcast that... Um, that that part isn't really much in question, you know. That that we we don't want to be waiting around, um, uh, and you know, it's more about like how to do that mobilization and how to c exploit the cracks, you know, in the party system. Um, uh, so so you're outing yourself uh, in um, uh, in in uh, good company. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, you know, so so I did want to ask you about the uh, sort of the the Trump period a little more specifically as a so you know as as you point out in the book, um, in some sense, you know, he is trying to capture that uh, energy of defection, uh, you know, and he even described himself as you know an anti-establishment uh, candidate and and so on. Um, and you know you you sort of in the book you you kind of you say you know it's possible that the new liberals will end up kind of uh, uh you know taking care of that aspect of you know so he had this big infrastructure kind of spending at least on paper kind of proposals you know uh funding to end the opioid uh, uh, or or to at least you know do something about the opioid uh uh, epidemic. Um, uh, so, how how do you evaluate th this sort of was was he simply kind of uh, being opportunistic about this, or do you think there was some seriousness to it? But then he got swallowed up just the way that Obama did. I don't think that he got swallowed up by the neoliberal establishment the way that Obama did. Okay. Um, you know, because you know. Um, so the neoliberals succeed in containing Trump uh, for the most part, not completely, but for the most part on um, on trade, right? Mm. So on on the issue of of NAFTA, for example, um, he was will he he was convinced, persuaded by particularly by the by the GOP Senate uh, leadership to uh, not to scrap the deal, but to renegotiate the deal, hmm. okay? Um, for example, and th this happened in, in a number uh, of cases, though, though not all. Um, where he falls short is on 
<laughs> on fiscal responsibility, uh, which he fails spectacularly, right? Yeah. Austerity, yeah. restraint. I mean, forget it. I mean, this yeah. is not happening under the Trump era, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and then the other way in which he falls down, and I think that you're seeing this in terms of the the sort of like defection of Republican elites to to Joe Biden in the 2020 campaign is post-racialism. Hmm. Right. I mean, this idea that, uh, you know, that the civil rights movement achieved equality and that we should leave it at that and that we honor the individual rights of, uh, of black people to vote and to due process under the law. And, you know, this is I mean, that's that's like Clinton to a T, hmm. you know, uh, for example. Right. Um, even as he's like, you know, engineering the mass incarceration of or not engineering, excuse me, continuing the uh, the the mass incarceration of black people uh, during the war uh, on drugs. He is nevertheless talking this talk. Right. That is able to keep black people uh, within his uh, coalition. It is the and it is the language of individual rights, not mm. structural justice but individual rights. And if you remember from the from the Bush administration, I mean, it, you know, it, what we remember so, I mean, what, what people of color remember so much from the Bush administration is of course, the fiasco of Hurricane Katrina in which he, he lets, you know, like 1900 black people die in the city of New Orleans. I mean, this mm -hmm. that is not like, oh, you know, that's, that, that you know, I, I, can, I, I can see why people would not think of, Bush, of George W. Bush, as a, as a kind of a, a post-racial uh, neoliberal, but you know, in 2006, I don't know if folks remember this. Trent Lott, who was the former Senate Majority Leader, spoke at the hundredth birthday of um, uh, of Strom Thurmond, and uh, and said, of course, he was the he was the senator from Mississippi, and he said he said, you know, if, if we had elected. Uh, Trent Lott, the 1948 presidential nominee of the Dixiecrat Party, then then we wouldn't have had all these problems over the years. Mm. And George W. Bush uh, basically goes on a tirade um, and squashes uh, Trent Lott, goes to the NAACP and says, this guy does not represent uh, our party, uh, clearly is a segregationist, uh, this kind of hateful talk has no place in the GOP. He said that. Yeah, that is I, I, I'm not excusing, you know, all of the, the, the scandalous things that happened uh, under the Bush administration, but post-racialism. OK, which mm. which right, which originates with kind of like the Nixon um, rebranding of the of the Republican Party is still there until Trump. Mm. Right. I mean, this is like overt nativism and anti-black racism. Right. I mean, yeah. this is there is no attempt here at post-racial discourse. And so I would say that the neoliberals succeed on trade, but fail in terms of mm. of fiscal responsibility and post-racial politics. Mm. Mm. You know, up until the end, uh, Trump has been trying to uh, get a higher stimulus than the congressional Republicans. Mm -hmm. um, want and you know one of the uh, the sharp things you do in the book is point out that uh, both parties are constantly playing this uh, sort of balancing act between racial broad crudely sort of defined racial issues and 
kind of economic issues um uh and they're willing to strike bargains um you know and and so trump seems to have been trying to say you know i do represent the people who are being uh, uh you know the, especially the the white working class people who who are getting squashed uh, so i am for a bigger stimulus and so on but i'm also inflaming and bringing the racial stuff out into the open as well um so i wonder if if you think that is like a conscious political strategy that doesn't look like it's working but or or is it just more trump you know more just like raging elephant <laughs> yeah i imagine it's both but it's for sure a conscious um uh strategic move hmm. right i mean i i think uh, you know it is this it is this uh attempt to to do frankly you know what what the the mid 20th century labor movement uh did i mean labor officialdom which is to was which is to privilege right the the white uh working class mm. uh and and insist that these are the people who are being um victimized right and it's it's really this is where you know the sort of the debate on the left about whether it's race or whether it's class and what's more important is really you can see it there as you know bs and really a dead end mm. street because mm. that is both a racial and a class project at the same time Hmm. right these people in Macomb County Michigan who defected from the Obama coalition to the Trump coalition in 2016 are die hard trade unionists these guys are UAW members right hmm. and they are you know they have been militant enough over the years on occasion to walk out um on the on the big 3 automakers right which is hmm. the ultimate sacrifice for a working person to do um but they are also um you know uh, deeply racist mm. um and these are the people that Trump is trying to hail into his coalition uh now you know where where this is falling flat is um is obviously in his response to the pandemic which has simultaneously uh destroyed the economy that he was you know really really excited to to promote um and defend in this uh in this electoral cycle um you know because you know working people are obviously laid off and um really hurting right now uh and um i mean we see it at UMass where where we are yeah. i mean just yeah. like mass layoffs right uh, and the lower down the totem pole you get in the academic hierarchy the harder you're hit right yeah. and this is happening all over the 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 country and it gives the lie to to the notion that trump is really their champion because if he if he had been their champion then he would have realized that this pandemic was going to wreak havoc on their economic uh well-being um and by his actions he has shown to everybody what you know what what some of us have known all along which is that he really doesn't give a crap about yeah. the working class he cares more about his own uh power uh and popularity than he does about about them uh yeah. so so that's that's hmm. that's my um that's my view of that i think that it is it, it it's both right it's a, it is a, it is a is a racial and class project that is deliberate but it are, it is also being advanced by this raging elephant who only cares about himself and his own power 
Yeah, it is striking the degree to which, you know, normally I think a lot of us try to avoid uh, talking about politics in terms of personalities, uh, just given that that's how the media tends to do it. But it's hard to get away from the personality here. I mean, it's it's a political force, you know, when you have someone just, uh, yeah, with a particular disposition, um, uh, as, as in this case. Um, uh, you know, the, the people in Macomb County, so, uh, you know, the, they, they come up a lot in these conversations and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, they did vote uh, or, you know, some of them did vote for Obama twice um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, uh, switched to Trump. And uh, so that is this very interesting, um, uh, you know, are you, are you aware of any sort of like real, you know, in-depth uh, perhaps by yourself or others, sort of, uh, you know, studies off people who, especially white, you know, unionists who did vote for Obama and then switched to Trump. So just to help us sort out the race and class, kind of how, how those were working together here. Right. Yeah, there are. I mean, they're mainly, um, you know, uh, what you and I, Sanjeev, would call survey analysis, right? Mm. Uh, there's some for focus group data, but the, but the, you know, the, the survey work is, is probably better. Uh, mm. And, uh, and so, you know, and they, the, some people have done a really deep dive into these um, Obama Trump uh, defectors. Um, mm. And what they, what they find is that, um, is the, the 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 reason for the defection is centered on some kind of racial um, animus. Mm. Uh, some people some people uh, cite uh, Islamic terrorists. Some people cite um, undocumented immigrants. Uh, other people uh, cite you know the the Democratic parties. Um, love affair with the African American community, um, but but it, it but it, it's racial uh, for mm. the most part. Mm. Uh, how they articulate right the reason for their defection, mm. um, but I think that you know the, I'm I, the one of the reasons why I wrote wrote that part of the book because the book is the first half of the book is about the civil war and then I'd make the jump to the great depression and to the contemporary period. And I try to draw kind of like uh, analogies uh, there. Um, And, you know, I think that I, I was, I was really just dissatisfied, right. With accounts on the left about what happened, um, you know, with, um, with the with the election of Donald Trump, hmm. right, um, and 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 where they fell down was on this question of, you know, all of these Obama voters who vote for Trump, hmm. they're not actually able to resolve that paradox, and you know I'm not saying I'm necessarily right, but I think I try to I, I try to answer that question head on. And my answer to that question is that, you know, is that initially the Obama, the, the Obama campaign and the Obama administration advanced a recognizably true blue pro-labor democratic, you know, welfare state, 
<laughs> narrative of how we are going to get out of, um, of the Great Recession. And the people were enrolled in that in that project, right? Mm. Like, holy shit, thank you. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I mean, democratic socialists may not necessarily be all, all about that, but like, yeah. but that, you know, that that looks and feels like, you know, the Democratic Party that had been the House of Labor, mm. you know, back mm. in the day. Um, and and I think that people were persuaded that. Four years was simply not enough for the for the Obama administration to uh, to fulfill uh, their promises to the white working class, and so they waited, and then it never materialized. Right? Mm. It didn't materialize for white working class people or other working oh, class yeah. people, um, and it's that which results, I think, in the defection. And what I argue in the book is actually the defection is happening among, among two constituencies, but they defect differently. Hmm. White working class actually switches their votes from the Democratic Party to Donald Trump. Black people stay home in larger numbers than they had in hmm. a very, very long time. It was the hmm. lowest black turnout um, for a generation, actually. Um, and mm. so, and and the defection is deepest in the upper Midwest, in places like Milwaukee, and in Michigan, uh, and in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, right? Mm. So you have this kind of you have you black black defectors stay at home because they're not excited about voting uh, for Hillary Clinton, and white people defect, but they're still they're both defecting in their own way, mm. right? And mm. I think it is really a kind of I mean I I, I think here. Uh, on this on this point, um, we can all agree, right? That this that neoliberalism is hard on working people, mm. multiracially, and it is and 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 it is that dissatisfaction with the neoliberal vision that I think um, you know leads to this defection, albeit in different ways, uh, away from the Democratic Party in two thousand sixteen. Hmm. Hmm. Um, wow, that that is great. I uh, you know. Uh, it, it really helps me sort of uh, make sense retrospectively of uh, of uh, what we were seeing at at the time. Um, you know, so so I have to ask. I mean, could you for could you see sort of a combination of these? You know, what you call the unexpected challenges, and then defections and fractures. I mean, could some of these sort of coalesce around a, a basic rejection of the two-party system. So, you know, the old question of, like, what are the conditions for a successful third party in the U.S.? Uh, so, yeah, could you, could you see this as doing more than fracturing the existing parties? Yeah, I, uh, I can, though I think that... Um, you know, aspiring to be one of the two major parties or to be alongside them as a, as a major third party is, um, it's, it's not something that I endorse, hmm. um, it, only because, you know, the, the, the history of institutional politics in the United States, with the sole exception of the Republican Party, which is 
actually able to kick out one of the major parties and become one of the two major parties hmm. is littered with the carcasses of you know socialist third parties and i think that like you know we look as 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 socialists we have to we have to read our history it is not always the case that the correct strategy is for us to form an institutional party and engage in parliamentary competition. That's not always what we ought to do, right? And I think, you know, we forget that, you know, the left in the United States prior to its co-optation by the Democratic Party was an exciting, like, just hodgepodge of, like... <laughs> You know, like misfits, intellectuals, um, you know, co-ops, unions, um, and yes, uh, the Communist Party and the Socialist Party and anarchists. It's an exciting group of people, right? Um, mm. uh, full of life um, and uh, and and united in building, you know, a, um, uh, a mass movement at different points in in American history. And I think that I think that perhaps the goal that we should set for ourselves as as an organized left is to be able to build enough power in order to define um, and, um, and, um, and, and, and really uh, push, successfully push um, a public policy agenda for the next generation, hmm. for, for, you know, for a generation. Right. Hmm. And I think here about like the potential of the 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 black freedom struggle in the 1960s. Um, you know, I think that, that, that they fell short of of um, of pushing uh, the kind of economic justice side of the mm. black freedom struggle, which which Dr. King, of course, you know, had with him all along, but was unwilling to foreground until uh, very close to his assassination. Yeah. Right. Um, like that was a movement that 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 almost did that. Um, and in so many ways, we live with the legacy of that of of that um, sort of unrequited uh, dream. Hmm. Um, hmm. And but this is not back in the day. This is not ancient history. Right. I mean, these this that's our parents' generation yeah. uh, or our grandparents' generation. They're still around. Right. And I think that I think we can take inspiration from that and say, you know, let's learn actually from the from the the missteps of that uh, and other struggles to see if we can sort of avoid the slings of co-optation by the Democratic Party mm. and to really to really organize for power. You know, uh, and and build a mass movement that can define and achieve, you know, the, um, a public policy agenda for a generation. There are, you know, there and the movements on the ground. I mean, Red Fred, not just Red Fred, but but you know, like the Marriott workers, for example, who led a nationwide strike of over a dozen hotels, uh, mm. you know, across the United States among others, and of course, the movement for Black Lives. I mean, this is very encouraging, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that if we could combine our forces and begin to build together, 
um, that that we can do it. Um, and we don't have to, the thing is that we don't have to engage in, you know, in the, in this project of, of building a brand new institutional party. Hmm. Hmm. Right. I think that the DSA and similarly situated organizations who could contest for, for a local office, for example, mm-hmm. you know, could continue to do that, but 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 keep its focus on building this mass movement on the ground. That's that's what I would recommend. Hmm. Hmm. That's really helpful. I you know, and since your official hat is uh, you know uh, director of the UMass Labor Center, and uh, uh, you know maybe we can close with kind of uh, asking you about so in the in the building of this mass movement. Um, you know, you've already alluded to the the uh, the strikes and and uh, you know over the last few years. Um, uh, what's your overall assessment of how you know how I mean you know overall? Yeah, how would you characterize the strength of the labor movement and unions in particular? Um, in their ability to do this kind of mass, you know, multiracial working class mobilization, uh, you know, where are we at basically? Yeah. I think where we're at is sort of uneven, right? Where there are certain unions who understand that the future of the movement is in building a kind of interracial uh, approach to labor solidarity and other unions that are more entrenched in this kind of older model of the the sort of you know white male uh, working class um, union member, hmm. um, and it's you know it, it's um, it, so and and I would say that there is a kind of a, a broad middle where there are some people like for example the Massachusetts building trades are doing terrific work. Uh, I mean, one one might be surprised because the the reputation of the trades is one of being racially <laughs> conservative, right? But if you look at the work that the Massachusetts building trades are are doing, it's fantastic. I mean, they're mm. they're bringing in women and girls uh, and communities of color into uh, the apprenticeship uh, program, um, and um, you know, and and really trying to build a multiracial union, right? Mm. Um, and you know, is it, it's not quite as sort of like um, overtly uh, progressive and socialist as, for example, some people within uh, the Service Employees International Union mm. are. But it's you know it's middling and it's good and it's better than it was, mm. right? Mm. Um, so, but and then of course there are people who are like proper left cadres, right? Who are on the ground um, in the in the teachers union movement, and who are you know if you know Eric Blanc argues that one of the reasons why you know you know these 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 uh, statewide strikes of educators happen is because you know you had people who supported Bernie Sanders who are proper lefties, militant trade unionists, who were leading those movements, right? Hmm. Um, hmm. Right. So it did. It, it's. It, you know, and then and then there are people who are like who, of course, are trying to play ball with the Trump administration and thinking that, you know, because Trump is pe- speaking this sort of racist, populist, white working class politics, that perhaps they have it in with him. 
you know, it, it's it's all across the shop, right? Mm. Um, but you know, the fastest growing unions, particularly in the service uh, and and public sectors, the ones who are progressive, who still know how to organize, right, are the ones that are are leading this uh, this charge. And because of that, right, I mean, if it, you know what I mean, like if it were like just mm. the United Farm Workers in California, right, then mm. I'd be really worried. Right, mm. but this is SCIU, right, and the American mm. Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association. Like these are mm. these are very large um, and influential groups with a lot of resources and still a lot of clout, right? Mm. Who are doing this kind of work, um, and so uh, I think, uh, am, am I like all the way hopeful? You know, um, no, but I, I'm I am very much optimistic, um, mm. and. You know, I think part of the part of my optimism is by actually directing the labor center because um, I recruit um, students into our labor studies program all the time who are who are really like minded and who want to become better trade unionists who want to know how to do the work like all of the work not just organizing but collective bargaining you know learning labor law labor economics and so forth right and these people are excited they're fired up they're ready to go. And they, and, you know, and, and I think like, you know, it would be pretty hard for me to do this work if I didn't believe that we could actually change this movement, right? <laughs> and what the, what the labor center does, I mean, really what we do is we are educating, credentialing, and then placing left cadres throughout the labor movement so that we can infiltrate them and change them forever, because that is what is needed right now. I mean, infiltration is sort of like a bad word, right? It's like, it seems like some sort of espionage cloak and dagger stuff. But, you know, like any, but any mass movement worth of salt understands that like, if we're actually going to change things, we need to get into the major institutions of civil society to the best that we can and, and, and transform them, get them to believe in something else besides this sort of, you know, uh, this uh, neoliberal vision, if you can call it that, right? Yeah. I mean, there has to be something else, but we're not going to be we're we're not going to be able to get people to believe in something else um, unless we're on the ground and articulating a vision wherever we are, right? Uh, yeah. And you know, we can do that in all kinds of ways, but the labor movement is is a very good place to actually do that uh, that kind of work. Over the last few years, we've seen quite different responses uh, from the two parties to defections in their ranks. The Democratic Party has, so far at least, successfully smothered fundamental challenges to its mainstream. We saw this most recently in the party's coordinated outflanking of Bernie Sanders' challenge in the primaries when it became truly threatening. The Republican Party seems to have done precisely the opposite by reforming quickly and completely around Trump's dissident campaign after he demolished its mainstream. De Leon's work reminds us of the volatile and unpredictable quality of these shifts. Most of us would agree with De Leon that regardless of which party wins a particular round, our work as socialists consists of organizing the vast majority to act self-consciously in its own interest. But De Leon also reminds us 
that the outcomes of this work are shaped deeply by the shifts within the two major political parties. During the coming weeks, I'll be talking with other scholars and activists about the possible trajectories of the two parties over the next few years. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day -day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. <laughs>